All right, chapter 2, verse 12 of Romans. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Let's, uh, please be seated. Well, it's hard to believe, but uh, today is the last sermon we will be doing together on our series on prayer and evangelism. And uh, we started six weeks ago, and for me, it's gone quickly. Um, but let me just review what we covered so far before we dive in. And I already did so in our prayer uh, before we prayed, but I'd like to review again anyway. Underlying, again, this entire series has been the idea that God wants to partner with us in doing His kingdom work. As powerful and equipped as he is on his own to fly solo, he chooses to use us. Because he's a God of relationship, not dictatorship. <laughs> the result then is he wants us to have a prayer life that's marked by devotion. Again, because his word is performative, not just informative. It's a, a prayer is a vehicle that causes things to happen. And when we pray, uh, in our first steps of evangelism, for him to open doors, he promises to do that. And when he provides opportunity, we're to share the mystery of Christ, as Paul said in Colossians chapter 4. And last week, we, we dived into the how-tos of evangelism. Ways in which we can share our faith once the door is open. Practical ways to engage people. And I want to review these lessons, because they're the springboard for today's sermon. We spoke about in our lessons from Jesus with the Samaritan woman that we must be willing to enter into social context and initiate conversation with those who differ from us. That's what Jesus did with the Samaritan woman, who the Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with one another. We looked into ways to open doors to transition from normal to spiritual conversation. Remember, his conversation surrounded water. It went from physical water at a well to spiritual water and the living God who is basically a, 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 a well of a fountain of life. Jesus, though, didn't leave it there. He, he shared important spiritual truths once she showed an, an interest in learning more. And he taught that salvation is a gift of God. He taught the true nature and identity of who he was and the need for forgiveness of sin. Today, we're going to expand on this theme from last week. And we're really going to focus on the last two lessons here. I want to share with you by learning through Romans chapter 2 ways in which you can transition from normal to spiritual conversation and how to share important spiritual truths um, through those conversations. Now, today's sermon is not the only way. <laughs> like, I get it. You can go to RZIM Ministries, Rabbi Zacharias International Ministries, and he can, I looked up his course, you can spend a year and a half in his school 
a year and a half learning systematically how to share your faith. And I'm all for that, and I'd encourage you to do that if you want, and have, and want to have the desire to learn from him and his schooling. So today, that's a, that's a massive, massive undertaking, of course. I just want to share maybe two simple ways, just two very simple, natural ways to enter into spiritual conversation and to transition from the normal to spiritual to get you to a place where you can share certain truths about Jesus and how salvation works. Just with two simple lessons from Romans 2. And really what we're doing today is we're going to appeal to everyone's love code that is wired inside of them. The transition will be how to appeal to everyone's love code that's wired inside of them. Hence today's topic, title of our sermon. Appealing to the Law of Love. So let's dive in. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Right off the bat here, Paul makes a reference to two groups of people in verse 12. Paul's reference to those who have sinned without the law, of course, are Gentiles who made up part of the, the church in Rome. In our culture, in our context, we just call those people non-Christians, people that don't have a faith in Jesus Christ. Those who sinned under the law, according to verse 12, of course, are as a reference to Jews. They were the ones who had the external Mosaic law. Now, Paul in this verse, prior to these, uh, verse 12, he made an incredible declaration to the church in Rome, who was comprised both of Jews and Gentiles. He said, even though you're distinct ethnically, there's no distinction in terms of the final outcome of a person who sins, regardless of their ethnicity in which law they have. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 12, there's no partiality with God. Now, under the law as a Jew or without the law as a Gentile, in the same boat, if you sin, if you sin, Paul says, there's no distinction in terms of final outcome, regardless of whether you have the law or not, or whether, what your ethnicity is. Now, you have to put yourself in the Jewish mindset. That is absolutely shocking. That is shocking to you as a Jew when you hear that. Why? Well, you're the elect people of God. You're His chosen people. The possession of the law, the very fact that you had God's Mosaic law given to you at Sinai, demonstrated that you were His people. No one else as a nation had the law except you. When you got circumcised, that you believed that was your, that was your covenant entry into the people of God, and that was what made you right with Him. You had special favor and status with God because of your possession of the law. But Paul says something incredible. He says, having that law doesn't make you exempt from God's judgment. Because he says in verse 13, it's the doers of the law, not the hearers, that are justified before God. But here was the problem. 
Paul had just pointed out in verses 9 through 11, or actually even to 12, if you sinned under the law, you're going to be judged. <laughs> and later on in Romans, he makes it very clear that if you don't obey the law fully, you're not right with God. This is his theme throughout Romans. In Romans 3.20, for example, he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So, listen to the phenomenal statement Paul's making here. He says to the Jews, You don't have a leg up on the Gentiles in terms of your standing before God just because you have the law. You're on equal playing ground because of sin. This is incredible to the Jew. But then he makes another dig in verses 14 and 15. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing them or defending them. Paul says this, Not only had the Jews failed to obey the law fully, and be justified by it, the Gentiles, who didn't even have the external law, were able at times to live instinctively in ways that demonstrated obedience to it, and at times were able to live more morally and in accordance with God's ways than the Jews were. They instinctively would obey the external law without even having the law. Again, another huge dig to the Jew. How is this possible? How is that possible? Well, because Paul says this in verses 14 through 15. Within every individual, there's an internal law code written on the hearts of every human being. A moral compass that guides us as to what is right and what is wrong. Interestingly enough, it's the same law code as if you had the Mosaic law in the external. So even though a person may not have the Mosaic law externally, it didn't mean they couldn't be morally responsible. Inside of every human being is this, this inner sense of oughtness, what I ought to do. Proof of this, church, is quite simple. There's a reason why more people live outside of the prison walls than they do inside the prison walls. <laughs> True, maybe there would be, be a lot more if they actually got caught, but even still, there's a lot more people in society than there is in prison. Why? Because there's this inner sense of oughtness, this written, written law that says you have to be morally responsible in certain ways. Now, just to be clear, Paul's not saying that that makes you right with God just because you know how to live morally responsible at times. He, right, he's just saying this, that there is an inner sense of right and wrong within every individual. You know, there's a really cool, uh, uh, really cool passage in Genesis 20. I want to read this to you right now. Talking about having integrity in a person's heart. There's a written law within everyone's heart. It's uh, Abraham with this king called Abimelech. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of Negev and lived for a time in Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Now, why did he do that? Because Sarah was a knockout. She was a beautiful woman, and he knew everywhere he went, the king of the land would want her. And twice that was proven to be true. 
So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent men and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she's married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you kill a nation even though blameless? Did he himself not say to me, She's my sister? And she herself said, He's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Now here's what's cool, God's response. God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you've done this. <laughs> but I've also kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Abimelech claims, I have done this in the integrity of my heart, and God says, yes, you have. How did he do this? He took her because he didn't know she was married, because it, the written law in his heart says, you don't take another man's wife. But because Abraham claimed he was his sister, he felt free to do so. This is before the Mosaic law is even given, and he's not even a Jew. Prior to the law, there's an internal law, even in Abimelech, that says, you don't take another married man's wife. You just don't do that. This is important. Because, again, Gentiles have something internally that the Jews were given externally. But here's the key for me, and for us, I should say, I like how Paul compares the inner law that's written in people's hearts to the external law, the ones like the, like the Mosaic law. Because what's, what's he driving at here? Is, he, is there an inner law that tells you you need to circumcise your children on the eighth day? Is there an inner law in you that says you need to obey certain food laws and to do all these things like the Jews? Well, of course not. But what is he driving at here in terms of this internal law that's same as the external law? Well, Jesus is really helpful to us in this, in Matthew 22. A Pharisaic lawyer comes up to Jesus and says this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. According to Jesus here, the whole law can be summarized by how we love God and love others. So when Paul says in Romans 2 that the law is written on Gentile hearts, and by Jesus' own words that the law has to do with love, we can assume that every human being has a law code of love written in their hearts. A law code of love written in their hearts. And this is the key to evangelism, church. Appealing to this. You appeal to the love code that's inside every human being. Why would we do that? Number one. It reshapes how one looks and defines sin. See, I've watched um, these kind of things on YouTube, like the way of the master. You know, when people say, have you ever told a lie? You're a liar. If you've ever murdered anyone, you're a murderer. And they kind of get into these banters. They're looking like, you know, um, I, not, I understand the, the value in that approach in terms of like street ministry and stuff. 
But the thing, the thing is, we're looking at sort of like the big sins, like the big ones that everyone just internally knows they shouldn't do. And so we don't categorize people as good and bad in that type of way. But if you understand love in a way, in this way, as, as being unloving, as being sinful, that changes everything. Because if you've never committed murder, you're going to say, well, I'm not guilty of that. Right? I've never committed armed robbery. Well, I'm, not, I'm good with God because I never did that. But if you help people see that love, that being unloving is sinful, everyone will admit that they've done that. I've never heard anybody, and if you use this kind of conversation, say, you know, uh, you, have a, you recognize that you have a love code inside of yourself, but that always you know, wants to give love and receive love and wants justice if you're not loved, and they'd say, yeah, of course. I say, so uh, when people hurt you, you want to, you, when people hurt you, you want them to be punished. And they'd say, yeah. And you say, that justice is part of being loving. Absolutely. Have you ever hurt anybody else? Well, yes, I have. Well, what should be done to you? Well, I guess punishment. Exactly. Punishment. Because any unloving act in our culture is seen, or any selfish act in our culture is seen as wrong. Appealing to the love code is really important. One of my friends, one of my neighbors recently said to me, there's only two types of people in the world, Andrew. There's good and bad. And I get it because he's thinking in big categories. And so he's, he put himself in the good category. Helping him understand anything, uh, love, that's this love code inside of him as being the definition of what sin is, to violate it, helps him rethink what sin is. So this is the second point. Once someone sees that they've actually all been unloving in their own life, it helps them see that they're not as morally good as they thought they were. I've never met a single person in the world that thinks they're perfect in their morality in terms of take, loving another person. Never mind God, but just loving another person. Never seen anyone or heard anyone admit they're not as mor that they're morally pure in that way. It's a great way to start in terms of conversation because it redefines what sin is. Thirdly, it helps people see that they would agree they deserve punishment. Once they recognize that they haven't been morally perfect, and they agree that justice is deserved for people who sin, then they would agree they would deserve punishment as well. It's a natural conclusion that all of us can see. This then opens the door to share God's solution. If they come to a place where they admit, I'm toast because I have not been perfect in the area of love, that's the opportunity for us to share God's solution. That was the sermon last week, the three points that Jesus brought up with the Samaritan woman, and it also provides the opportunity for the gospel, which Paul speaks about in verse 16. But another aspect we can appeal to in evangelism is, evangelism is the conscience. The conscience. This inner witness. Look at verse 15. He says, In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. Their conscience bears witness, and their thoughts alternatively accuse or defend them. You know, a witness in court does what? 
Well, they testify as to the evidence that they know to be true. This is what the conscience does. It testifies as to the evidence of how a person has done in relation to the love code that's written inside of them. So the conscience is like a, a judge. A judge. It, it basically lets someone know when they have violated what they ought to have done. Or it's like an alarm that goes off. It's, it's a bell that rings to say, wait a minute, you violated that which you ought to have done, which you know to be morally right. And it's, it's, uh, it's amazing because after, after the alarm goes off and the judge sort of speaks out, this is where the thought life kicks in according to Paul. It's where one person, begin, one person begins to contemplate and reason based on what the conscience has told them. He says here that the alternate of the accused or defend them. So when you violate your moral written law of love, the alarm goes off and says something was wrong there. Then your thought life starts to contemplate and reason about what to do with this alarm. And Paul says there's only two ways you respond. Number one, you defend. Or number two, you accuse. Or in your, if you have an NIV, it'll say um, you will accuse or, or excuse. So, you're, you, so if it accuses you, if your conscience accuses you, and you're reasoning through this, that means that you're, it's producing guilt. You're accused, so you feel guilty. And so you're contemplating and reasoning how to deal with that guilt. And people have various ways in which they deal with guilt. They can fall into depression. They can lash out. Uh, they can self-medicate through drugs or whatever. Different ways people deal with it. Another way people deal with it, and when they, when, they get, when they hear the alarm go off, is they justify their actions. They try to justify, and that's they try to defend themselves, and they try to excuse their behavior. But again, appealing to the conscience, and this inner, this thought life, is really important in terms of helping someone understand the reasonability of, going, of God and His existence, and sharing spiritual truths. You appeal to the inner witness that informs one of their guilt when they have done wrong. You know, it's amazing to me how many different societies and cultures have come to believe in the power and the reliability of the conscience in determining truth and honesty. And these are my two evangelistic techniques I would use with people as just opening up spiritual conversation. Something like this. You know... All of us have this love code that we know, that we, this sense of oughtness of what we should do. Isn't it interesting that our culture uses uh, things like the lie detector test to uh, demonstrate what is morally right? What do you mean? Well, the U.S. Department of Defense, for example, uh, believes that uh, in their interrogations that lie detector tests are 95% accurate. It, Israel, in their Department of Defense, believes it's 96% accurate. The Calgary Fire Department actually uses it to hire you. I had, a, I had an employee at my gym, uh, remember Casey? Casey, he was sweating bullets one day because he goes, Andrew, I'm, I'm up for my interview with the fire department. And he goes, uh, I got to take this lie detector test. And I've talked to other firemen about what to do when they ask you like really personal questions. You know, it was, it was really interesting. And Jason Belange and Dan's church had to take it as well. Why did they use it? Why does Israel believe it's 96% accurate 
the U.S. Department of Defense thinks it's 95, and the Calgary Fire Department uses it to hire people. Because they believe that they can prove whether you're guilty or not to the point that it makes a difference of whether you're accused of something or you get hired for something. Just from the premonition that by hooking your body up to sensors and measuring physiological responses such as blood pressure and breathing and heartbeats, that'll determine honesty because your conscience won't let you tell a lie without your body responding. Interestingly enough, in the, in the 95 to 96%, they attributed most of the, the error to more to the person conducting the test than the person going through it. But if you live in a certain tribe in Africa, they have a very interesting way of determining guilty for, for things like theft. Often the men are the ones who steal. And so in this tribe, they line everybody up and they try to find out who was the one who stole whatever they was, was taken. They ask every man, did you do this? If they answer yes, the trial is over. If they answer no, they have an interesting way of determining guilt. They ask you to stick out your tongue. They take a hot knife and they put it on your tongue. And they believe that if you're lying, it'll stick. Because there'll be no saliva there. If you're telling the truth, there'll be saliva there and it'll come off easy. They believe that a dry tongue demonstrates that you're lying because you violated your conscience. Because if, if you didn't do that, you would, your tongue would naturally have like basically juice on it. Isn't that powerful? They believe without any external evidence that there was something inside of these people that if they chose to lie, would defy them and reveal their dishonesty. This is so important as a tool for evangelism, church. Appealing to people's conscience. Every single person has had an alarm go off when they've done, when they violated what they know they ought to have done. Have the person rethink how many incidents they would have had to reveal when that alarm went off. Ask them, well, let's, you know, if I were to take your life, every time that alarm went off and it produced guilt, every time, and I put that on a DVD, and I invited all your friends and all your family to come over and watch it. Would you hit play? <laughs> Would you hit play? The answer to that every time will be a resounding, not a chance. Again, the overarching emphasis of our culture is there's good people and there's bad people. But yet not one person will hit the play button just on the conscience alone. These are pretty cool, simple ways of just getting into natural spiritual conversation to help them rethink, rethink who they are as people. Again, it's not a guarantee that they're going to come to know the Lord just because you've presented these things, but they're tools. They're just simple, small tools to, to further you along in your conversations.
If they're willing to go farther in these conversations, you are going to have to provide God's solution. Because Paul makes it clear that you, there needs to be a solution, otherwise we basically are in trouble before the Lord. Look at verse 16. He says, um, I'll actually take a running start again at 15. He says, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing them or defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Again, if we can get this far, we need to share God's solution to this problem. He is going to judge the outward works that we've seen, but more than that, he's going to judge the inward motivation behind it. He says he will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. The secrets. Things that nobody knows except God and you. The things you, as a husband, your wife don't know. The things as a wife or husband doesn't know. The things as kids, your parents don't know. The secrets come out on the day of judgment. But Paul doesn't leave people stranded there. Doesn't leave the Jew and the Gentile stranded there. In the rest of his book, he, he spells out the hope found in Jesus Christ. And I'll just leave these two verses with you to finish the sermon. Listen to Paul's solution to this problem. To the Jew, under the law, with sin in his life, and the Gentile, that's you and me, <laughs> without the law, but with an inner law, equivalent to the Mosaic law in terms of love. He says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. The problem in verse 12. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. The solution, according to Paul, is taken care of by Jesus Christ on the cross. He was sinless. We were sinners. He died as a substitute for the sins we committed. And just by simply putting our faith in Him and what He did for us, we can be made right with the Lord and His friends. Consider one more. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Again, I know that uh, you can read books and go to university learning just how to share your faith and to be evangelistic and open up the doors. But I'm hoping with these just two simple things from Romans, appealing to the written love code in every single human being, and appealing to the conscience that doesn't let anyone get away with guilt, or a violation of moral law, I should say, with their moral law written in their hearts. These can be two simple ways into conversation with people that don't know the Lord. And again, the pervasive attitude in our, in our culture is one of morality, is being the standing before God. That's the pervasive issue. In fact, in my experience, and actually, Stu, it was your client that said this, 
Um, I've only met one person who's ever told me, if I stand before God, I know I'm going to be judged. Remember that? That was shocking to both of us in the gym because we're usually having the opposite conversation, convincing people they need to be saved. It's the norm in our culture. And so these are two quick and easy ways to reveal their need for the Lord. And hopefully God can use these as he opens doors for you in 2021.